This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of Monday, November 27th, 2023. We wrap up the wild cards for the clubs and move on to the hearts. But before mm-hmm. we do that, we check in with each other. Emily, how's it going? It's going all right. Advent is here, and it has taken me by surprise. Who could have known? Who could, Who could have, have known that December would come after November? <laughs> I I am just barely getting adjusted to it being the year 2023. So <laughs> I I wrote 13 when I dated a paper today for the year. That's 2013 sounds viable. I put 12 1 13 and then I looked at it and I just I just sighed. Yeah. I, that was that was a while back actually. <laughs> yes, precisely 10 years. <laughs> what else is going on with me? I helped my husband and my daughter prepare. They're going on a little bit of an adventure tomorrow. There were other plans that were not so exciting, but those plans got canceled. And so they got to put this plan together. That They're going to go into New York City. They're going to have like a high tea, you know, with the like the tiered tray with the sandwiches and the scones and the cookies, you know. And then they're Mm -hmm. going to go see the Nutcracker Ballet. And my daughter got to choose what my husband is going to wear. So So he's wearing his prettiest dress, too? Well, he's wearing his prettiest tie. But she she poured over the ties. And then she wanted to see all of his belts to see which one would go best. It was a whole thing. And then she wanted me to help. She has curly hair. So she wanted me to help her, like wash and detangle and put in curl styling product and like blow dry to get it as curly as possible and she's got a dress she's going to wear but we've what we've discovered is that she's outgrown a lot of her christmasy nice dresses so yeah but i mean that happens but it's nice to find that out at the beginning of december because it does give me some time before other times when she might want to wear a fancy dress um that's a good point yeah uh so that's the that's me. That's a little snapshot of my life right now. What about you? I'm just keeping on. Got a, just a series of bad news on the job front this week. And also one scam, which was like, mm, it, mm, like it's, it's disappointing to have a thing where it's like, oh, someone is interested in hiring me. Oh, no, they're just interested in trying to gather my like personal information to scam me. Like, that's... That's frustrating, but it's more just like, come on. Yeah. Like, I, I'm i trying to get a job. Yeah. Can you not, like, kick me while I'm down, whoever you are? Yeah, you know? like, scamming like, job just... seekers seems, like, especially d- low, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's like, anyway, I'm, yeah, having a rough go of it on that front. And other than that, like, things are... Okay, we are mostly recovered. Though my kids seem to be developing a cough again. Oh no. Because children are just right. constantly sick. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Advent isn't quite so stressful for us as it is for someone who is kind of in charge of leading that season. So we're, we're looking forward to Christmas. Yeah, we're nice. And we're also looking forward to 
getting through the champion's wild card. So let's get through another week of it. On Monday, November 27th, we have the first of the two-day total point affair that is the club's finals. We have the finalists, Nick Casconi, an orthopedic physician assistant originally from Queens, New York. Dennis Chase, a biotech project manager from Palm Springs, California, and Jen Jaswinski, a youth services librarian from Algonquin, Illinois. And the Jeopardy round categories are women in science, cats a rising star, the 23rd Psalm from the King James Bible, of course. Mm-hmm. Pick a side. I want my baby back, baby back with baby in quotation marks, and ribs. Interestingly, they got all of the 23rd Psalm clues, except for the except $200 the level. The yeah, yeah. They're the first five words of the psalm was the clue there, and nobody thought of it in time. It is, the Lord is my shepherd. Yeah. But they got all the rest I of them. I also couldn't remember. <laughs> it was like the first five words. I was like, oh no! What are those words? Yeah. Though I walk, what is the no? I mean, I do this. I couldn't get there. I do this for my job, and the words "Our Father who art in heaven" popped into my yes. head before I was like, "Nope, wrong memorized thing." Yeah, there are a lot of memorized things you have to memorize for this thing, but yeah, that's a different one. Yeah, so like I think for all the rest of these clues, they gave part of a quote, and you gave another part. And for that for that two hundred dollar level, you would think it would be the easiest, but mm-hmm. they didn't give you you know any. They didn't prime you. Yeah, yeah. They didn't get you get you moving in the right direction. Yeah, I know what you mean. That's yeah. That's a good point. So the thousand dollar level, surely these two qualities shall follow me all the days of my life. And you had to fill in what the two qualities were: goodness and mercy. Nick got that one. So, you know, they were all like that where you got the rest of the quote. And even though it was maybe not as well known as the Lord is my shepherd, I think that that helps. Mm-hmm. You know? For sure. Throwback to your Beatrix Potter deep dive. The mm-hmm. $100 level of women in science. As a mycologist, this author's studies included spore germination. Jemima Puddle Duck would have to wait a few years. That's, uh, that's Beatrix Potter. Sure is. Mycologists. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. have anything more to say about that. I just know I know multiple people who are super uncomfortable with mushrooms. Yeah. Well, I mean, The Last of Us. I mean, sure, but I <laughs> that's a fairly recent phenomenon. Yeah. Whereas, you know, people who have like lifelong aversions to like to mushrooms. eating mushrooms or to like the concept I, of mushrooms. I think the concept. Yeah. It's like mentioning mushrooms is like nope 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 yeah they are a little upsetting when you think about them like genetically you have we have more in common with cucumbers than cucumbers have with mushrooms you know like they are so wildly different sure i mean you can say that i don't i don't know that i buy it though you know what i mean ah (laughs) i mean yeah no no that's fair that's fair yeah mushrooms are just so weird they are very weird that's fair yeah Daily double number one is in that women in science category. It's at the $1,000 level. Pick number nine. Jen finds it. 
she is at a thousand in third place. Dennis is at eighteen hundred, Nick at twelve hundred, and she makes it a true daily double. And her clue is with her husband George, Gladys Dick found the cause of this childhood disease named for its red skin rash and came up with a cure. And she gets that correct. It is scarlet fever, which it's like a strep thing, right? It's a, I think I'm pretty sure scarlet fever is like a strep complication. Sure. Yeah. That is one that I don't know. And so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jen is at 7,600. Dennis is at 4,600. Nick is at 3,200. And the double Jeopardy round categories are Supreme Courtship, Country Music Hits, Letter Histories, Culture Club, Everybody Loves Raymond, and Triple Rhyme Time! Woohoo! Triple Rhyme Time! We got it in a finals. Finally! Triple Rhyme Time! Wait, Apparently have, this... Have we had a Triple Rhyme Time recently? Maybe we have. May, maybe we have this one. I saw someone, I don't remember who, so apologies to whoever it was, but saying, hey, this was from my episode. Ah! Because they got the heavy Chevy Levy which was the $2,000 clue, weighty Camaro tax. Yeah. But they were called that, so. Mm -hmm. I guess it is nice for the people who had these categories to be like, hey, that was mine. Yeah. That brings me back. Good, good old nostalgia. I sort of would like to see how some of the categories from our game do. I wonder if they'll bring any of them back before we get new material. I imagine we'll recognize them. Yeah, we will. We will. I, I, sure. I am 100% confident. I will. I mean, I only have one game to remember, you know? So. <laughs> sure. But I, I mean, yeah, I also remember most of my clues. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I mean, I remember ours from watching them afterward. That's a good point. It's hard to remember the clues you just answered when you were just on stage. Yeah, I had some memories of the game, but also like your memory formation is weird when you are under a lot of pressure. Yeah. And so like there were parts of our game that were entirely news to me when it aired. (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea I had gotten a rebound. That was a surprise. There were whole sections of the game where I was like, oh, this is nice. I did well. I didn't know that this happened. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey look at me go way to go past me yeah making, making me proud mm-hmm. we had a fun description in the culture club category at the 800 level in 1877 the bolshoi first danced this ballet about a prince who falls for a weirbird dennis guessed what's the firebird which isn't a terrible guess except for the date it's about 50 years off mm-hmm. 40 years off yeah it's decades off Oh, that's it was Swan Lake. Dennis Dennis gets the Firebird. Jen got the rebound with Swan Lake. It's a funny way to describe Swan Lake. Oh, Weirbird, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It took me a second to get there, but yeah, that was a fun phrasing. I thought, yeah, yeah. And then we had a triple stumper where they just missed. They they don't have this Pavlov, I guess, at the two thousand dollar level. Sienese painter Simone Martini painted a portrait of this poet's love, Laura, but alas, it's been lost. Jen guessed who is Milton, but that's that's Petrarch. Anytime mm-hmm. there is Laura, it should be, you know, Laura and Petrarch. Yep. I was going to compare to other couples, and now I'm drawing blanks. Mm-hmm. Samson and Delilah. Yeah. Uh, Orpheus and Eurydice. Yeah. Abelard and Eloise. Yeah. I, I just went to see Hades Town again. Took my sister to see Hades Town while they were in town for Thanksgiving. So I guess I've got Orpheus and Eurydice on the brain now. On the brain. Yeah. 
$400 level of Culture Club. Jasper John's Sketch for Good Time Charlie can be found at this museum, 1000 Fifth Avenue at 82nd. And that, of course, is a New York City address, but I blew it. Dennis guessed what is the MoMA. The MoMA is much further south. They were looking for the Met, Metropolitan Museum of Art. And for some reason, I thought the Guggenheim, I don't know. The Guggenheim is somewhere around there, too. Where's the Guggenheim? Oh, yeah. The Guggenheim is at Fifth Avenue between 88th and 89th Streets. So... So, like, less than a mile away? Yes. Yeah, it's about 20 streets to a mile, so like a quarter mile. (laughs) I was on the right avenue, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, the piece of art is only at one museum and the the address you know it's pinned it's pinned but like it is but you were basically as close as you could get without being correct yep daily double number two is in everybody loves raymond two thousand dollar level pick number 14 nick finds it he's at 8800 jen's at 10,400 and dennis is at 8200 so they're all doing well he wagers six thousand gets the clue a chapelle de fer was a battle helmet made from this metal. And Nick gets it with what is iron. Mm-hmm. I felt like this whole category was kind of easy. Yeah. That did not feel like a 2000 to me. But. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And Dennis finds daily double number three. It's at the $2,000 level of Supreme Court ship, which has been about the relationships of Supreme Court justices. It's pick number 22. He's at 14,600 at this point. He's just 200 behind Nick. And then Jen is trailing with 10,400. Dennis wagers 7,000 and he gets the clue. He avoided the clear and present danger of bachelorhood by marrying Fanny Dixwell in 1872. And he hesitates for a long time. Ken says, say something. And rather than nothing, he blurts out, Marshall. Who has all? Not a bad guess for. Uh, well, Marshall was the correct. There have been a lot of Marshalls. Yeah, the Marshall Thurgood Marshall was the correct response for the question that he had just previously answered. So I, mm-hmm. I imagine maybe that's why that name came to mind when he needed to blurt something out. Oliver Wendell Holmes is the response here. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. I think right, or is it senior? There were father and son were both famous one was a supreme court justice and one was a poet and i don't remember which was which but i don't think they needed you to specify so going into final jeopardy jen is at eleven thousand six hundred. dennis is at 6800 and nick is at sixteen thousand eight hundred. they get the final jeopardy category british cities and the clue over the motto fortis est veritas the coat of arms of this city features a beast of burden crossing over some water and this was a triple stumper. Mm-hmm. Did you figure it out? Dennis guessed. Oh, I did. Okay, good did. for you. I did not. Dennis guessed, <laughs> what is Manchester? It is not Manchester. He wagered 3,800, so he drops to 3,000. Jen wrote, what is Canterbury? That is also incorrect. She wagered 6,000, so she drops to 5,600. And Nick wrote, what is Hereford? Hereford? Hereford. Yeah, I think Hereford. Hereford. That is also incorrect. He wagered 7,500, so he drops to 9,300. It is Oxford, mm-hmm. which I was like, Latin? That's weird. It must be an old city. How am I going to know that? And then it describes an ox fording. Yeah. So I was like, oh, got it. It must be Oxford. Yeah. And it makes I, sense to have I a, got a Latin to, it. it must be an old city and maybe academic. And then I was like, Cambridge? Well, a bridge is crossing over water, but what's a 
Tam is the river. And then I was like, oh, is there some other city that ends with a bridge? So I just went down a dumb, like, wrong road. <laughs> so close. I mean, it's hard not to follow those lines of logic, yep. you know. So the first round ends with everyone getting it wrong, which means scores are kind of close going into the second mm-hmm. round. Yeah. So Tuesday, we have the Jeopardy round categories, writer's words, seconds, slinging arrows, a capital idea, the Department of Homeland Security, and foreign language. The capital idea was a fun category. Every response had a capital city in it. Mm-hmm. Lhasa is the capital of Tibet, right? It is. Oh. Oh. I be- yeah, it is It is the capital of Tibet, which I thought was an interesting yeah. choice. Yeah. Oh. To use Lhasa Apso for the dog breed. Yeah. Huh. I thought it was interesting that Jeopardy would use Yeah, that. definitely. Although it doesn't specify that it's like national capitals. Yeah. It did end up being national capitals. Yeah. But. Yeah. But it is, it is, it is disputed. Yeah. Have we talked about Stockholm Syndrome? I don't remember if we have. That came up at the. I, I also don't remember. I feel like we yeah, have. Yeah, came up at the $800 level of a capital idea. I read, I found somewhere an interesting article about Stockholm Syndrome basically suggesting that the incident that led to the term Stockholm Syndrome being coined. It was a hostage situation in Stockholm mm-hmm. that was like catastrophically mishandled by the local law enforcement. We did yeah. talk about this. You've talked about this yeah. before, yes. Yeah. And so whether the original supposed sufferers of Stockholm syndrome actually had Stockholm syndrome is, you know, a question worth considering. <laughs> there are <laughs> I I I know the names of or like the the French word for two animals mm-hmm. types of animals. One is bird and one is fish. Song. And yeah, and both are because of music. So the four hundred dollar level of foreign language in French, l'oiseau is this a and it sports le plus le plume le plumes. I don't yeah. know. Uh, there, the plume. rules. There are no rules. It's all I refuse to believe there are, there are, there are consistent there are rules consistent in French. Rules. It, you can say that all it's you want. It's actually more it consistent than English. Don't. Don't. <laughs> I'm fighting words right there. It's not. You uh, know this is a very inconsistent Yeah, no, language. English, English is dumb. Yeah. English is absurd. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So there's a Messian piece called Oiseau Exotique, which is exotic, an orchestral, mm-hmm. yeah, an orchestral, like, piece that is meant to imitate the calls of a variety of exotic birds. Huh, that's cool. Yeah, it it is cool. It is a cool piece. Uh, it's worth checking out. So that's how I know what oiseau means, because anytime I hear it, I think of oiseau esotique, and then I'm like, oh, that, that means it's first. And then poisson is very similar to the French word for trombone, which is poisson. And as a trombone player, it was always fun to make jokes about playing fish yeah. when the instructions are for poisson. Yeah. I was fully ready for you to be like, and I know poisson from The Little, Little Mermaid. Mermaid. Yeah. No, I already knew it by the time I re- by the time I returned to the Little Mermaid as an yeah. adult. They cut Les Poissons from the live action Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. It's a tragedy. Was it? Well, I don't know. I liked Les. Poissons. It was. It was fun. They replaced it with Scuttlebutt, right? I don't know. 
Do yeah, you have, that's true. Do you have true. an opinion about Scuttlebutt? I don't. I super don't. Okay, cool. <laughs> I don't know if you recall, my experience of the new live-action Little Mermaid is what you're referring mm-hmm. to, is that we came out of the theater and our car was... Oh, right. So oh, my gosh. Have a, I've forgotten that. I don't now. have a lot of, like, I don't have a lot of care about the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Daily Double number one <laughs> is in the seconds category at the $600 level, pick number nine. Nick finds it. He's at 800. Jen's at 800. Dennis is up to 2,600. And he wagers 1,000, as well he should. Gets the clue. Henry VIII secretly married this second wife in 1533 after she got pregnant, and he listened to my wives of Henry VIII deep dive to know that it was Anne Boleyn. Mm-hmm. Only way that it, that could it's be the known. only way anyone... Yep. Yeah, no one knows about Anne Boleyn. Mm-hmm. She's, she is a footnote in history, really. <laughs> you really put Anne Boleyn on the map. <laughs> That's right. It's me and me alone. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jen's at 1600, Dennis is in the lead at 7200, and Nick is at 5800. Double Jeopardy categories are remember the main M A N E, like hair. Name that 1990s year. Cool. That was a weird one. Yeah. Uh, Stardust, Flower Power, Peace, Love, and Understanding, and 4N Language, mm-hmm. which is uh, correct responses have 4N. Yes. Throwback to your. 14 points deep dive way back. 14 points. Yeah, and peace, love, and understanding at the $800 level. Would Roe Wilson live to see this organization grow out of the last of his 14 points? That is the League of Nations. Nick got that one. So I guess he he listened to that deep dive. Yeah, Nick must be a listener. Yep. Hey, Nick. Good job. Yeah. Way to go. Nice. Way to play. Mm-hmm. Way to represent us. Uh, that, ni- that 90s category was... It, it was troubling. Yeah. In an existential sense. So like $400 clue, Bob Dole loses the presidential election. I remember that. That was 96. I was in first grade and it was my first real awareness of like politics. Because like we, you know, we were like learning about elections or whatever, but we're in first grade, so we don't know anything. We have no opinions. Like we're not real people yet. And we had this thing of like, we're going to, as a class, we're going to vote. You know, are you going to vote for Bob Dole or are you going to vote for Bill Clinton? Or I, I don't honestly don't even remember if Ross Perot was an option. But my class, I believe, all voted for Clinton because he was already president. And we were like, yay, good job. And I told my brother, who's a couple years older. And so he was old enough to be aware that at that time, I believe both my parents voted Republican, but certainly my dad, who was more outspoken about it i like told my brother and he was like why would you do that we would vote for dole and i and i had like this deep feeling of like oh no i betrayed my family and i've never been the same so All right. that's that's and that's how we got here <laughs> that's how we got here <laughs> yeah so that just brought back all of that because i was like what year was that oh yeah 96 of course yeah the others were more memorable in terms of like events i guess good on nick to get 1994 for the earthquake Mm -hmm. in la nobody tried the year that iraq invaded kuwait i think they were probably like was it 90 or 91 yeah because that's where i was Mm -hmm. and i liked that they had the michael jordan clue michael jordan is named mvp of the nba finals because you had most of the decade yeah to choose yeah it was like almost like a reverse trick question (laughs) yeah it was like you, you'd have a harder time getting it wrong yeah. than getting it right. 
I'm a few years older than you. So the the $2,000 level, the euro currency is officially introduced into financial markets. Gentry in 1995, it's 1999. I was pretty confident about that one because my grandmother took me on a trip to Paris when France was about to switch over to the euro. And so I was like, well, if it's that, like, I'm pretty sure that trip was in 2000. I think there was kind of a staggered, like, switch to the euro. Right. And so I was like, okay, well, if it was the 1990s when the euro was introduced, it must have been very late. So I'm pretty sure it was 99, which in fact it was. Yeah. Yeah. Daily double number two comes up very early. It's in flower power at the $1,600 level and it's pick number two. Jen finds it. She's at 2,800 with Dennis at 7,200 and Nick at 5,800. She wagers everything. If she gets it right, she'll still be in third, but a close third. And her clue is Austria's national flower is this one that Rogers and Hammerstein described as small and white, clean and bright. And she gets it right. It is Edelweiss. And Daily Devil number three is in Stardust at the $1,600 level. Pick number five, so it's also early. Jen finds this one too. She's at 6,800 at this point. Dennis is at 6,000. Nick's at 7,000. And she bets 5,000. Gets the clue a faint constellation in the northern sky. Camelopardalus represents this animal. And she doesn't have a guess, but it is a giraffe, which was once called a camel leopard. Yeah, that was new to me. I didn't know there was a giraffe constellation. Like this whole this whole thing, I was surprised by. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that the, this constellation was there, but I, re- I remember learning that giraffes were once called camel leopards, which I'm like, I guess, but also not really. Yeah. A camel? Like a camel. Like a camel? Yeah. Like, why not a, a horse leopard? Yeah, I mean, it's it's more horse-ish, but also, like, it's just its own yeah. thing. Like a zebra, like, wh- yeah, why isn't a zebra like a tiger horse? Right. If we have an entirely different word for an animal that looks kind of like another animal and mixed with a different mm-hmm. one, like, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, words are Yeah. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Jen is at 3,800. Dennis is at 16,400. Nick is at 14,600. The final Jeopardy category is literary geography. And the clue is this state university's writer's workshop has had famous alumni who wrote about the state like Jane Smiley and W.P. Kinsella. Uh, Jen gets it correct with what is Iowa. Uh, Iowa writer's workshop is a thing to know of. Apparently. Yeah. She wagered everything, which puts her at 7,600. When you add back in her subtotal, she's at 13,200. Nick also got what is Iowa. He also wagered everything, which puts him at 29,200 for the game and 38,500 for the tournament. And Dennis got it wrong. He guessed what is SUNY. And he wagered 11,500, which drops him down. So he gets 4,900 for this game. 7900 for the tournament and so nick is the tournament champion right. mm-hmm. way to go nick yes so he'll moving on to the turn yep. his tournament prize is he gets to be in another tournament that's a good prize it's a, actually it's a good prize, it's a good prize. i would i would yeah. take it yeah that's one of the best parts of winning on jeopardy is you get to play yeah. again so that brings us into the hearts quadrant of the diagram And we begin with quarterfinal number one on Wednesday when we have the contestants Henry Bear, a software engineer from San Francisco, California. 
Nell Klugman, a museum educator from Brooklyn, New York, and Ron Talsma, a product support specialist from Chicago, Illinois. Ron Talsma, notable giant slayer. Mm-hmm. Am I correct? Yes. Ron is the one who defeated Amy Schneider. That's right. Yeah, so he's probably feeling a lot of pressure, I would imagine. Maybe he wasn't. Mm-hmm. I think I would be yeah, if I were coming definitely. back. Definitely. Like, oh, man. I'm I'm that guy. We have the Jeopardy round categories. Here comes the neighborhood, discographies, A, B, or C, luck of the draw, reading rainbow, and a contradiction in terms. Mm-hmm. Reading rainbow was not about the excellent PBS children's program hosted by LeVar Burton. It was books that have colors in the title. Yes, unfortunately. Yeah. I did wonder if it was going to be like a peace offering to LeVar Burton. Like, man, they did you dirty, they, man. They did him dirty. They did. I'm still a little mad about it. Yeah. The only triple stumper in discographies was Houses of the Holy, these rockers, and they showed a picture, and no one even guessed it's Led Zeppelin. This is the first pick of the round. I feel, I don't know. Maybe it's because I know Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. and so I felt like it was like, of course pe- you would get these, right? But I guess I guess they yeah. Wouldn't. I, I did not know it, so... Yeah. If the pop music is not from 1998, I'm not familiar with it. <laughs> I, I, right, we have established that, yeah. Sure. I'm doing better. I'm improving at mm-hmm. pop music. Although I've I've taken a hard turn into Taylor Swift and only Taylor Swift recently. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of Taylor there Swift. There is, there is. I'm sure, you, I'm sure you'll work your way out of yep. it. Yep, it, it'll take a while, though. I listened to the 10 minute version of All Too Well three times today. <laughs> three minutes of nice. All Too Well. <laughs> I had to turn in my classical music card because I forgot Catfish Row. It was a triple stumper, and here comes the neighborhood, $1,000 level. A real Charleston, South Carolina neighborhood was the inspiration for this row in the opera Porgy and Bess. Mm-hmm. I claimed to be a musician. Yeah. I couldn't remember Porgy mm-hmm. and Bess. I have seen Porgy and Bess, but. Charleston, South Carolina also has a famous Rainbow Row. And so I saw Charleston, hmm. South Carolina Row and was like, oh, yeah, Rainbow Row. My husband's family is from South Carolina. And so, you know, I've, I've like done the tourist sites of Charleston a few times. Hmm. Yeah. So whoops. I also blew that one. Possibly unrelated, but Mario Kart has a famous Rainbow Row. It's true. Everyone loves Rainbow Row. Yeah. I do want to mention that the book that I'm just finishing reading to my daughter came up at the $600 level of Reading Rainbow. Anne of Mm. Windy Poplars is a sequel to this 1908 classic. Roan got that one. It's Anne of Green Gables, which I've been reading to my eight-year-old. And that book is 115 years old. And like, it still works. It holds up. It's a good book. It's a good read aloud. We just got to the second to the last chapter where, spoiler warning, Matthew Cuthbert dies. Jeez Louise. Now I'll never read yeah. it. <laughs> I don't know. It's just it's just good. It's a good, well-written book, and it still, it still holds up. Anyway, Daily Double number one is right below that at the $800 level of Reading Rainbow. Henry finds it at pick number 10. He is at 3,400 with Roan at 3,200. Nell is at zero. He makes it a true daily double and he gets the clue in a children's classic by Scott O'Dell. San Nicholas Island is better known as this title place. And he doesn't have a guess. He ends up saying what is Treasure Island rather than 
nothing, but it is the Island of the Blue Dolphins. I saw San Nicholas and was like, must be Christmas Island. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) It's like, I have no idea what this is. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Roan is in the lead with 7,800, Nell's at 2,400, Henry's at 1,800. And the double Jeopardy categories are Making Waves, Farewell to the Chief, metric Problems, Bartenders, Ben Franklin's Drinker's Dictionary, and Let's Have a Ball with Ball in Quotation Marks. That Bartenders was about ballerinas and O's. Yeah. Wait, do you call do you call a male ballerina a ballerino? Or are you are you being yes. okay? I did not actually know that. It's good to, good to know. They got the four hundred with Barishnikov. There were pictures for everyone, so mm-hmm. that was helpful, I think. But yeah, yeah, they got they got Barishnikov. I don't I don't know. Maybe it wasn't at the four hundred dollar level. And then twenty fifteen, this prima ballerina made her Broadway debut in On the Town. That's Misty Copeland, who everyone should know. She was mm-hmm. an awesome. But then they didn't get the 1216 or 2000. Nuriev, Rudolf Nuriev was the 1200 in 1989. He again danced with the Kirov Ballet the first time since his defection. Nuriev was the famous defector, right, from the Soviet Union mm-hmm. in, the, in the 80s, or in the, not the 80s, like the 50s. And then the $1,600 level was Nijinsky, who should be paired with Diaghilev, who should be attached firmly to Stravinsky going to Paris. <laughs> If <laughs> like I I know you if you don't know ballet and you don't know the works like you have nowhere to to connect these names Diaghilev and and Nijinsky. Diaghilev was the um choreographer Nijinsky was the was the dancer and they were the ones who did Stravinsky's ballets in Paris. Mm-hmm. So if you at least remember Stravinsky as a bigger more like perhaps memorable name in Paris Diaghilev and Nijinsky are with him. And then 2000 this ballerina known for her dying swan role starred in the 1916 silent film The Dumb Girl of Portici, which I did not know that about Anna Pavlova, but I believe that's also where the dessert yes. gets its name. Mm-hmm. That's how I remember Anna Pavlova. Yeah. I could not remember it. Like all of these names, once they came out, I was like, oh yeah, I've heard of them, but I couldn't pull the names. I've always liked the name Diaghilev. It's a I don't good know name. why. Yeah. Like, it just. Yeah, it like feels good saying it. I don't know. Like it has a good mouth feel. Yeah. You know? I don't know. So it's always stuck with me. Cool. The $1,200 level of making waves. Uh, Roan mm-hmm. tried to like overthought it a little, I think. When you're inside a wave's hollow but still riding, you're said to be in this colorful waiting area. And they had a picture of a surfer. Roan tried, what's the blue room? And I think. Which makes sense because it's a wave. Yeah, like the ocean is blue. It's the green room, apparently. They didn't. Yeah, they, the surfers weren't trying to be clever or like tongue in cheek about it. They're just like, I don't know, leave it to surfers. You mm-hmm. know? We have unsettling mushrooms again at the $2,000 level. <laughs> Let's have a ball. The fungus that discharges a cloud of spores when mature. That's okay. We're all fine. That's a, that's a puffball. Nobody tried it. That doesn't bother no? me. No. I don't know. It just doesn't. <laughs> no. It's normal. I... Like, it's how it works. I don't know. It just. Again, I mean, so is I'm Ebola. just taking it at face value. I'm just <laughs> accepting it as it is. I'm not coming into it with preconceived uh-huh. notions. <laughs> He's just okay with the natural world, like you know, yeah. great white sharks. Yeah. What, I don't, what is and that? malaria. 
and mushrooms. I'm accepting it as as it is. I, you cannot put the existence of mushrooms on the same thing as like a disease that kills millions of people. Okay, all right, fine. That's, those are not equal. okay. I can't believe I'm defending mushrooms so emphatically. They discharge felt, a cloud of spores, and I'm sure the spores are fine. I have no evil intent. Sometimes you just got to discharge a cloud of spores. Mm-hmm. What? I can't blame them. I can't blame them. Okay. Sometimes you just got to. Anyway, I also felt for Roan at the $1,200 level of Ben Franklin's Drinker's Dictionary. The quotation is, he sees these. Ben probably didn't mean Walter Payton and Dick Butkus. And of course, we know that Roan is from Chicago. And so he recognizes that these are football players. Uh-huh. And so he says, what are quarterbacks? But those are not quarterbacks. Those are just Chicago Bears. Felt really bad for him. <laughs> Daily double number two is the first pick in the round. It's at the $1,600 level of Farewell to the Chief. Henry finds it. He started out the round. The I know it's been a bit since we said the scores. He's at 1,800, runs at 7,800, Nell's at 2,400. He only bets 1,800 when he could have bet 2,000, mm-hmm. but that happens. I gets a clue August 2nd, 1923 in San Francisco, California. And this is kind of tough to go right into this category without, you know, working through the lower levels. But he figured out that they're saying, like, who died on this date? Yeah. You know, which president? And he gets it correct with who is Harding. Mm-hmm. And Daily Double number three is pick number 10 at the $1,200 level of Let's Have a Ball. Nell finds this one. She's at 5600 with Rowan at 5800 and Henry at 3600 She makes it a true Daily Double. That's gutsy. I like it. And she gets the mm-hmm. clue to prevent someone from joining a group by voting against him. And she gets that correct. It is Black Ball. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Roan is at 10,600, Nell is at 12,400, and Henry is at 8,000. And so it's pretty close. We get the final Jeopardy category, A Bit of Britain, and the clue, in disarray, it was sold at auction in 1915 to a local Wiltshire man who would donate it to the British government three years later. This was another triple stumper. Henry guessed, what is the Stone of Scone? Which I believe sits at the throne mm-hmm. of the king that is incorrect he wagered 2601 and drops to 5399 turns out to be a good wager uh roan wrote what is the magna carta that is also incorrect he wagered 5401 so he drops to 5199 which is unfortunate and nell wrote what is the stone of scone and also wagered 8801 so she drops to 3599 which means that henry from third place with some good wagering ends up winning mm-hmm. the correct answer is stonehenge wiltshire i guess is the, the clue there yeah i to, missed you it you have to know that stonehenge i did too yeah i absolutely did i was like i don't know <laughs> it could be any of the goofy things in british mm-hmm. history so that brings us to thursday this is our second quarterfinal our contestants are Alisa Hove, a botany professor from Asheville, North Carolina. Kira Donegan, a post-bachelor research associate from Washington, D.C. And Tyler Vandenberg, a marine officer currently serving in Stuttgart, Germany. And the Jeopardy round categories are Econ 101, I Married a Beetle, Who is Theon of Smyrna? That's corny, with corn in quotation marks. Well, I'm warm-blooded. And check it and see. There's some kind of joke going on with 
the category titles here, but I don't know what it is. I think, right? I'm warm blooded. Check it and see. What is that song? I don't know. Got a fever. I'm 103. Well, maybe you are dead. I'm hot blooded. Hot blooded. That's the that's the song. Oh, okay. Anyway, yeah, that's that's what it is. Who is Theon of Smyrna? I do not know. We found out that he was from Turkey, mm-hmm. and he was a contemporary of. Who did we find out he was a contemporary? I don't know. Maybe no one. Uh, seemed to have lived at the same time as this Roman emperor, Hadrian. Yeah, Greek philosopher and mathematician. Great. Yeah. Cool. Way to go, Theon. Yeah. You have your moment in the sun now. I was curious how they were going to handle the I Married a Beetle category, given that there are five clues in a Jeopardy category, but four beetles. And there are five beetles. Right. Well. They couldn't. They just. They disrespected Pete Right. So like we got to the thousand dollar level and the clue was Cynthia Powell. And I don't I mean, the only like spouse of a beetle i could have named before this category was yoko ono and so i very confidently at the thousand dollar level was like pete best <laughs> like no uh-huh. no that yep. was john, was that was like, john lennon's be... first wife <laughs> right yeah which if i thought for a moment yeah I didn't, yeah mm-hmm. but i was like i didn't even didn't even need to see the clue i was like this is gonna be pete best there aren't any left yeah the eight hundred dollar level of that's corny john with this last name means booze personified apparently that's john barleycorn and like yeah, they just made that up it. to check if we're paying attention. They absolutely did. <laughs> oh no, you know old John Barleycorn. <laughs> you know, if you say it with enough confidence, uh-huh, then everyone uh-huh. will be like, "Oh, I guess that's a thing." Yeah. All right. I mean, that's typically how I operate in trivia settings. If someone else says something with a lot of confidence, I'm like, "Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah that, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Sure." Daily double number one is in Econ 101. At the $600 level, pick number 10. Tyler uncovers it. He is at $1,600. Kira is at $1,200. Alyssa is at $1,800. He bets it all. Gets a clue. A strongly free market school of economics is named for the university of this Midwestern city. And he gets correct with the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Tyler is at $6,200, just behind Kira, who's at $6,800. And Alyssa is at $3,800. For the double Jeopardy categories, islands and peninsulas, we sell fun if it ain't baroque hats quotable quotes and why blank o blank y each response will have those three letters in that order though not necessarily together and if they'd started at the top of the category i wouldn't have been confused yeah but the first one they picked was a $1200 clue to tell a friend that something is really his bag say it's right up these two words and that's you're out. Right. Tyler got it. Which put in my head that Y had to be at the start. Right. Which was not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the $400 level young fellow seen here on his special day, they had a picture of a birthday boy. Which... There are a lot of letters before you get to that first it's Y. It's true. Yes, there are. Ugh. Was the... So, if it ain't Baroque, I'm just now realizing it's just an art category and the the one conceit is that it's not Baroque art. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't see how the category title really contributes yeah. much. But yeah, I'm not sure what's going on there. The $2,000 level of this late graffiti artist's paintings are paired with Maya Angelou's poems in the children's book, Life Doesn't Frighten Me, that is Basquiat. 
And I was like, oh, maybe there's like wordplay, right? Like it's art and, you know, the words seem sort of similar to Baroque, right? Because Basquiat starts with a B and has a Q in there. <laughs> I don't know. but Okay, yeah, sure. You know, yeah, but yeah, like yeah, the rest yeah. no, of it I doesn't bear it out. So no, it doesn't. Yeah. It's like Jackson Pollock. Like, okay. Yeah, pastels. And like, yeah. Okay, and Chagall. Mm-hmm. Waiting for that connection to arrive. Just Yeah. I feel like I did better in the We Sell Fun category than I would have before we started doing our quizzes. Because gaming businesses come up in your quiz mm-hmm. question writing from time to time. That's true. I have I have asked about this specific company before. Yeah. Fairly recently, uh-huh. I think. The $2,000 level or the $1,200 level? I can't remember. Both of those, I think, have come up at some point in my... Both, yeah. but I think the $2,000 level is... Yeah, this sense. gaming company merged with Blizzard in 2008. Microsoft bought the combined company maker of Candy Crush and Call of Duty. And Tyler got that one. It's Activision. We also, mm-hmm. at the $1,200 level, had Dungeons & Dragons comes from the company called These Wizards. So that's Wizards of the Coast. Kira knew that one. I think those are both things that I learned in the last year or two. I have certainly asked Yeah, I've been trying to pay more attention to the companies that I should know as I start to learn more gaming stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Wizards is a good yep. one. I think they're owned by Hasbro Mm -hmm. overall. Okay. Which also owns My Little Pony. Oh. Which, so maybe they should buy your game. Yes, yes, listeners, I have developed a uh, tabletop role-playing game based on the My Little Pony Equestria Girls IP. Mm -hmm. So so there's that, yes. Maybe that's my my career path forward. Great. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> you could like is it a like is it a text document like how does yeah i sent well really i just have i have character sheets mm-hmm. for each character and that's really it and then i just draw a map and we use little figurines and i make it up as i go cool. you gotta sell it i think that's the that's it's a million dollar idea that's it it would be if it weren't complete copyright infringement <laughs> it's not copyright infringement if you sell it to the ip holder to the company <laughs> that is just working you know that's for a good yeah that's a good point that's a good point daily double number two is in that if it ain't baroque category it's at the 1200 dollar level and tyler finds it at pick number six he's at 7800 kira's at 9200 elisa is at 4600 he readers 3000 and he gets the clue. A 1912 work by Mark Chagall is titled after this musician found in the title of a Broadway show. And he doesn't know what to do with this clue. He has done great in geography. He's done great in economics. This is not his category. And he guesses who is Kandinsky. So he's heading in the wrong direction. The Fiddler is the title of the work. Fiddler on the Roof is the Broadway show. And Daily Double Number 3 is in Islands and Peninsulas at the $2,000 level. Tyler also finds this one. So we found all three. It's pick number 11 in the round. He's at 8,000. Here is at 10,400. And Alyssa's at 6,600. He wagers 3,000. It's the clue Vietnam and China both claim the Paracel Islands, which include Rocky Island and Woody Island in this body of water. And he knows right off the bat that it's the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. 
So going into Final Jeopardy, Tyler is in a slim lead with 15,800. Kira's at 15,200. Elisa's at 7,800. And the Final Jeopardy category is American History, where they have the clue established in 1963. This group had its conclusions questioned in books, reports, and a special 1970s congressional committee. And Tyler was the only one who knew this one. Elisa just had what is the and didn't get any further than that. She wagered 5,000, so she drops down to 2,800. Kira had... What is the Watergate Commission? Oh, no. Oh, no. I loved that. I mean, I felt bad for it, but also it's like... Yeah. Relatable. It's relatable content, yes. Kira. Thank you. She wagered everything. So she drops to zero. And Tyler did know it. What is the Warren Commission? And he also wagered everything. He needed to wager almost everything to make a cover bet. So, you know, you might as well, I guess, like maximize your winnings at that point, right? Yeah, You're going to drop to yeah. almost nothing if you miss it. So he doubles up. He goes up to 31,600 and he will be a semifinalist. So we get to Friday, December 1st, the third game of the Hearts quarterfinals when we have the contestants Brianne Barker, a biology professor from Madison, New Jersey. Bryce Wong an ophthalmology resident from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Garrett Marcotte, a software engineer from Boulder, Colorado. We have the Jeopardy round categories, landmarks for sale, a red-hot Latin lawyer, Macbeth's witches on Food Network, <laughs> uh, crossword clues H, nursery rhyme phobias, and Aerosmith, the band. Mm -hmm. Nursery rhyme phobias was a good category but i think i it, it jumped out at me because a couple times when there have been nursery rhyme questions in learned league mm -hmm. people will have fights on the internet about whether everyone knows nursery rhymes and whether mm -hmm. everyone should know nursery rhymes and whether there's something wrong with people who don't know nursery rhymes <laughs> and like <laughs> nursery rhymes it is objectively a lot of text they tend to be a little nonsensical and it's kind of a you know it or you don't situation. Yeah, yeah. You'd have a hard time guessing at a nursery rhyme. Yeah. For sure. That being said, there's a lot of stuff in our knowledge that is hard to guess at. And really, I think anything in trivia, you just fill in the blank and people will argue about whether they should be things that are known. And if there's something wrong with people who don't know them and, and all that. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the contestants got three of the five here. And there was like, there was an additional layer, which sometimes functioned as a clue, but sometimes made things a little harder. Uh, I thought the $800 level, it made things a little harder, in my opinion. While Mary Mary was quite contrary, she didn't seem to have anthophobia, a fear of bees. And that was flowers. Nobody tried it. It's Mary Mary, quite contrary. How does your garden grow? And then it lists some, I think, flower names. I would have guessed gardens because I didn't recognize antho yeah. in anthophobia as a root word that I could connect to anything. Mm. So, you know, that makes things a little more difficult. On the other hand, the $200 level, if you're frig frigophobic, you won't like your peas porridge this way. Bryce got that one. It's cold. And like, even if you don't know peas porridge hot, peas porridge cold, like you can look at that frigophobic mm -hmm. and be like, that seems like that probably 
has to do with refrigerator. Right. Yeah. Some um, some kind of frigid thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, obviously, the, the cold piece porridge was not in a refrigerator, right? But like you could recognize the root word as, you know, one that you can connect to other words, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The $600 level of red hot Latin lawyer feels it brings up some trauma. I shouldn't say that. That 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 minimizes actual trauma. It brought up some feelings for me. The clue is if you're not of sound mind to stand trial, you're this three-word Latin phrase, and that's non compos mentis. And Bryce got it. I had never heard that term before. Uh mm-hmm. b- before it was a category in my Tournament of Champions semifinal oh. game. Oh, but it was spelled non-compose mentis, and it was about composers who had died, like dealing with oh, the death right, of composers. Yep, mm-hmm. And I don't know, it just brought me back because I learned what that term actually meant. Because I was like, "How is that a category title?" So I looked it up afterward. I was yeah. like, "Oh, that's what that term means." And so it's like a play on that. I'm trying to remember. Did you get outbuzzed in that category a lot? I'm trying to remember what I did because yeah. there was a category clue on Beethoven that I didn't get. And I don't know, I kind of blocked some of it. And then I couldn't remember Smetna for the Moldau. Oh, yeah. It was a $2,000 clue. And I was like, nobody got it. So I had, you know, it was an easy shot at buzzing in if I could just pull his name, but I couldn't, couldn't remember it. That's rough. Daily Double number one is in that red hot Latin lawyer category. It's at the $800 level and Garrett finds it at pick number eight. He is at 1,000 with Brienne at 1,200. Bryce is 1,200 in the red at this point. Garrett makes it a true daily double and he gets the clue. This Latin word still used today originally meant he pledged. Today, it's a sworn written statement and he gets it correct. It is affidavit. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Garrett's at 7,800. Bryce has made it out of the red. He's at 2,800. Brienne's at 2,600. And the double Jeopardy categories are Eve 6. Fun with geometry. Okay, corral me. One of these kings is not like the others. Uh, you name the one of the three kings that ruled a different country from the other two. Punny and not punny definitions and Eros myth. The Jeopardy round we had Eros myth like the band. This is Eros, E-R-O-S, myth like mythology. Very funny. Very funny. Eve 6, sadly, was about six, actually, characters named Eve, because one of the clues had a, a double Eve. It was not about the late 90s, early 2000s. What are they? What are they? Are they emo? Are they a punk? I don't know. That, that yeah. band. I would say emo more than anything. Yeah. Eve 6, incidentally, the lead singer of Eve 6 has the most delightful Twitter presence. Yeah, just kind of like... He just, just replies to, to everyone. everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the bit where he replies to everyone saying, do you like the heart in the blender song? <laughs> so good. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> Had this category been about Eve 6, I would have been absolutely in my element. But I did know some of the characters named Eve. <laughs> I knew some of them. Yeah. <laughs> characters and actresses named Eve, I guess. Have you ever seen All About Eve? I have not. Oh, it's so good. It's at the $1,600 level of Eve 6. Ann Baxter played Evelyn Heath. 
in Guest in the House and Eve Harrington in this 1950 film. That's where we get the six Eves is the Evelyn and Eve in this clue. And Garrett got that one. All About Eve is great. Love that movie. Hmm. Okay, Corral Me was all cow questions. Yeah, it was. That $400 clue, I, I was unaware pig, that this was a... That's true. There was yeah. I was unaware that this was a type of cow, but they showed a picture, even though I'm a beef master cow, which is just the best name for a cow. <laughs> One of the six essential qualities I fulfill is the ability to give this. Brienne got it. That's milk. But like, mm-hmm. if you're going to have beef, wouldn't you want it from the beef master? Mm-hmm. One would think, yeah. I mean, why would we as proud Americans settle for anything less? I want all of my beef from beef master cows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Apparently it's a breed of beef cattle developed in the early 1930s by Tom Lasseter from a systematic crossing of Hereford cows and shorthorn cows with Brahmin bulls. Okay. Good job. Now we know. Good job, Tom Lasseter. Yeah. Yeah. Making the beef master. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, when you get to name your own cow, why not? Yeah. It's like, all right, I have this new kind of cow and I need to sell. Cowie McCow face. Cowie McCow face. Good beefums. Tasty beef. What can we call it? I thought one of these kings is not like the others was just really easy. I thought it was too. Yeah. Because I struggle with like historic world leaders and I still was able to figure out all of them, even though I couldn't often remember what country any of them were from. I'm like, those two are in the same list and that one isn't in the list. Mm-hmm. I don't remember yeah. what the heading on the list is. But you're but. able to know. Yeah. yeah. I thought it was pretty gettable too. The, yeah. the only one that had an incorrect response is a $400 price. It was Henry the Seventh, Louis the Fourteenth, Richard the Third, And Bryce said, who's Richard the Third? I mean, it's Louis yeah. the Fourteenth. Right, exactly. Yeah. I, I agree. I thought it was a bit, a bit gettable. They could have gone a little bit deeper on some of the, the higher level clues. Yeah. Daily Double number two is in the Aerosmith category at the $2,000 level. I think I think I talked about this in a quiz once or in mythology deep dive. I don't know. I feel like I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but maybe not. Anyway, Garrett finds it. Pick number eight in the round. He's at 13800 Bryce is at 2800 Brienne's at 7000 and he wagers 7000 Gets a clue. This word for the mind shares a name with a girl loved by Eros. And he gets a corrected psyche. Mm-hmm. And daily double number three is in punny and not punny definitions. It's at the $1,600 level. Pick number 18. Garrett finds this one as well. So he got all three. He's at 22800 with Bryce at 10400 and Brienne at 9800 he wagers just a thousand this time, and he gets the clue a colossal brim of a cap or an overseeing manager. And he gets that one correct. It is a supervisor. <laughs> yeah. Punny. Yep. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Garrett is in a lock position at 27,400. Bryce is at 10,400 and Brienne's at 12,600, which are really good scores for not finding daily doubles. Yeah. Unfortunate. We have the final Jeopardy category, Bodies of Water, and the clue, the Goshute, a Western people, call this vast body of water Titsapa, meaning bad water. Bryce got it correct with what is the Great Salt Lake, rest in peace, Grandpa. 
have a have a moment for for Bryce's grandpa. He wagered nothing. Brienne got it incorrect. Wrote what is Oneida Lake? Isn't Oneida in the east? Yeah, I think so. I thought so. Anyway, yeah. wagered eighty two oh one, and Garrett also got it right with what is Great Salt Lake. Also wagered nothing and just kept his position moving forward. So that's the end of the week. We are now into the hearts, and we will continue on through the rest of the month. And this is the point in the show where we remind you that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash potentpotables. You can go there to find some quiz questions. I've already preloaded them, so all Yay! I have to do is click publish. And nice work. I could still screw that up, so we'll see. The only but, way you can know whether Kyle successfully completed this extremely simple task that nevertheless <laughs> evades these two Jeopardy contestants, one of whom was a Tournament of Champions contestant, yeah, is by, is by subscribing to our Patreon. It's the only way you can get the thrilling conclusion to this cliffhanger. <laughs> that little X in the corner is so tempting. Anyway, mm-hmm. no, there's those. There's some other exclusive content, and every passing week it gets a little bit older, but it's still good. Uh, so you can go there to support us financially if you so desire. And of course, we recognize that our podcast is one of the more important things in the world, but not like absolutely. The most. Yeah. So uh, we also include some causes in our show notes that we think you should check out if you uh, are feeling in the mood to support some good causes. Mm-hmm. All right, Emily, it's deep dive time. What am I talking about? Stonehenge. Yeah, of course. I had such a good list of backup choices because they had all those missed ballet dancers and Brunhilda. I those were pretty high. I at first I was, was going to go with like the ballet dancers. I was going to talk about Nureyev and, and Nijinsky and Pavlova. I was going to talk about all of them, but then I was like, it's a missed final Jeopardy, and it's Stonehenge, which is kind of a big deal. So I and the fact was so fun. It. The fact was so fun, which I really really appreciated. Yeah. So this was the final Jeopardy from Tuesday? No, Wednesday. From Wednesday. In disarray, it was sold at an auction in 1915 to a local Wiltshire man who had donated it to the British government three years later. That was, of course, Stonehenge. He paid £6,600 for it. Ken said he bought it for his wife. That is disputed. Hmm. We're not sure that he actually like intended it as a gift for his wife. But... That is the fact, and that is what I'm going to talk about. So here we go. We're going to talk about Stonehenge. There's an awful lot of information about Stonehenge if you really want to get into, like, the materials and all of the fringe theories and a bunch of other stuff. Conspiracy theories. I'm not going to get into a lot of that. I'm going to give some information. I'm just saying, as with pretty much anything we talk about on the podcast, there's a lot more to it that you could learn, but I'm going to try to give some more context and so that if clues like this come up, you can feel a bit more confident. So, the Old Oxford English Dictionary cites Ilfric's 10th century glossary in which Hengecliffe is given to mean precipice or stone. Therefore, Stenhenges, or Stenhenge, not far from Salisbury, recorded in the 11th century, are stones supported in the air. That's where this the name Stonehenge mm. apparently starts to come from. And in 1740, William Stukeley, who was an antiquarian, notes pendulous rocks are now called hengens in Yorkshire. I doubt not Stonehenge in Saxon signifies the hanging stones. So these are all like 
explanations of where the name Stonehenge comes from. And now then the word henge has come to mean a circular ditch and berm. Stones are not necessarily part of a henge. Archaeologists define henges as earthworks consisting of a circular banked enclosure with an internal ditch. So that term kind of grew out of this, talking about Stonehenge and other things in England that are like it. It kind of just became the word for it. But Stonehenge, despite being contemporary with true Neolithic henges and stone circles, uh, it is in many ways atypical. For example, its extant Trilithon's lintels are uh, extremely high for a typical henge or a typical you know, Neolithic stone structure, stone circle. And also some of the Trilithons use mortise and tenon joints, which is unique for it. It comprises several architectural features that contribute to its unique character. The outer circle consists of 30 upright sarsen stones, each topped with horizontal lintels. The Trilithons, uh, a set of three massive stones forming a U-shape, stand prominently within the inner circle, and the blue stones, interspersed among the sarsen stones, add a layer of complexity to the monument's design. Mike Parker Pearson is uh, one of the, I guess, more leading Stonehenge researchers. He's the leader of the Stonehenge Riverside Project, noted that Stonehenge appears to have been associated with burial from the earliest period of its existence. He said Stonehenge was a place of burial from its beginning to its zenith in the mid-3rd millennium BC. The cremation burial dating to Stonehenge and Sarsen stone phase is likely one of many from this later period of the monument's use and demonstrates that it was still very much a domain of the dead. So Stonehenge evolved in several construction phases spanning at least 1500 years. We go back into the Neolithic period around 3100 BCE. At this time, a circular ditch and bank known as the Cursus were constructed. It's speculative as to what the purpose of that original work was. Theories range from religious ceremonies to seasonal rituals. The builders placed bones of deer and oxen in the bottom of the ditch, as well as some worked flint tools, and the chalk that was dug up from the ditch was piled up to form the bank. Within the outer edge of the enclosed area is a circle of 56 pits, each about three and a third feet in diameter, about a meter. They're known as the Aubrey Holes, after John Aubrey, who was another antiquarian who was thought to have first identified them. In 2013, a team of archaeologists led by Mike Parker Pearson uh, excavated more than 50,000 cremated bone fragments from 63 individuals buried at Stonehenge. Physical and chemical analysis of the remains show that the cremated were most equally men and women and included some children. So that's like going back to the earliest 3100, around 3000 BCE. The first stones arrived at Stonehenge, making a crucial development in its construction. These stones were known as blue stones and were sourced from the Presley Hills in Wales, nearly 150 miles away. The transportation of these stones over such a distance is, it was, it was a a matter of speculation and argument for a long time. Between 2017 and 2021, studies by Professor Parker Pearson and his team suggested that the blue stones had been moved there following the dismantling of the stone circle in identical size to the first known Stonehenge circle in the Welsh site of Wonmon, I guess, is the, I can't pronounce Welsh, we've already talked about this. However, it is believed that the cessation of human activity in that area at that same time suggested migration as a reason 
So the people who lived there moved and they brought their stones with them. Around 2500 BCE in the Bronze Age, the Sarsen stones, weighing up to 50 tons each, were transported from Marlborough Downs, approximately 20 miles north of Stonehenge. And these are the like distinctive outer circle um, mm-hmm. stones. Later in the Bronze Age, although the exact details of activities during this period are still unclear, the blue stones appear to have been re-erected. They were placed within the outer Sarsen circle and may have been trimmed in some way. Later, that like the next phase from 2280 BCE to 1930 BCE, further rearrangement of the blue stones. They were arranged in a circle between the two rings of Sarsens and an oval in the center. Some archaeologists argue that some of these blue stones were from a second group brought from Wales. Then we have the period from 1930 BCE to 1600. So after that, the northeastern section of the bluestone circle was removed, creating a horseshoe-shaped setting, which mirrored the shape of the central Sarsen trilithons. Uh, and then after 1600 BC, we get kind of the last version of Stonehenge that we kind of still see today. And this is when we get the Y and Z holes. There are a bunch of holes, and they're all labeled with letters. I wonder if conveniently there happened to be 26 holes that they decided to name, or if they just kind of like grouped them together and ended up at Z. But we get the Y and Z holes, the last known construction at Stonehenge built around 1600 BCE during the Iron Age. Roman coins and medieval artifacts have been found in or around the monument, but there's not record of whether it was actually used continuously through British prehistory. The purpose of Stonehenge remains a subject of scholarly debate. Of course, some theories propose religious or ceremonial functions, suggesting that the site was a place of worship or ritualistic activities. Others argue as it is as a burial ground, pointing to the presence of cremated human remains in the vicinity. The monument's inclusion on the UNESCO World Heritage List occurred in 1986. It was produced by a culture that left no written records, and so, like like I said, it's up to uh, debate. A number of myths surround the stones, specifically the Great Trilithon. They're aligned with the sunset of the winter solstice, and the opposite is aligned with the sunrise of the summer solstice. Solstice. So it's pretty much believed like that at least that design was purposeful to line up with the solstices, some kind of you know, ancient pagan importance, whether it was meant for ritual or not. There's Little to no direct evidence revealing the construction techniques used by the Stonehenge builders. Over the years, various authors have suggested that supernatural or anachronistic methods were used, usually asserting that the stones were impossible to move otherwise due to their massive size. However, conventional techniques using Neolithic technology as as basic as shear legs have demonstrated the ability to move and place stones of similar size. In fact, an experiment using a sleigh carrying a 40-ton slab of stone was successfully conducted near Stonehenge in 1995. It took more than 100 workers (laughs) pushing and pulling a slab along an 18-mile journey from Marlborough Downs. In the 1960s, Gerald Hawkins described in detail how the site was apparently set out to observe the sun and moon over a recurring 56-year cycle. However, more recently, two major theories have been proposed. Jeffrey Wainwright, president of the Society of Antiquaries of London, and Timothy Darvel of Bournemouth University have suggested that Stonehenge was a place of healing, the primeval equivalent of Lord. They argue that this accounts for the high number of burials in the area and the evidence of trauma deformity in some of the graves. Mm. Although they do concede that it 
was probably multifunctional. There was probably an ancestor worship there and other things like that. Mike Parker Pearson, who I've talked about already, he works at Sheffield University. Uh, he, on the other hand, suggested that Stonehenge was part of a ritual landscape that was joined to Durrington Walls by their corresponding avenues and the River Avon. So his argument was that it, it is part of a much larger kind of like design along the landscape of the area. Both explanations were first mooted in the 12th century by Geoffrey of Monmouth, who talked about the curative properties of the stones and was also the first to advance the idea that Stonehenge was constructed as a funerary monument. But like we said, we're not sure. Its design includes celestial observatory functions, might have allowed predictions of eclipses, solstices, equinox, or other events. But again, they're all hypotheses and, and theories. Um, those are the ones that are like more realistic. Of course, there's always the, you know, aliens and whatever. But, but I don't care to get into those. Throughout its history, Stonehenge has faced various threats, including erosion, weathering, and human impact, and efforts to preserve and restore the monument have been ongoing. Uh, in the 20th century, restoration work was carried out to re-erect fallen stones and stabilize the structure. I'll talk a little bit about some of the people who want to go there in just a minute. Uh, I mentioned just a few important names with Stonehenge. John Aubrey, who I mentioned before, the the Aubrey holes <laughs> are named for him. What a thing to have named after you. He was an antiquarian in the 17th century. William Stukeley was also an archaeologist and antiquarian. In the 18th into 19th century, Richard, Richard Colt Hora was an excavator of Stonehenge. He helped establish a chronological understanding of the monument's construction phases. And then, like the Jeopardy clue, 1915, Cecil Chubb bought the site for 6,600 pounds and gave it to the nation three years later, with certain conditions attached. He believed that a local man should be the new owner of, the, of, of Stonehenge, and that's more likely why he ended up buying it. Like I said, there are fringe scientific theories quote-unquote scientific theories you know uh mm. they they contribute to the mystique but i'm not going to get into the big ones there are a couple of important stones or or really uh, one big one the heel stone which is also known as the friar's heel or the sunstone it aligns with the summer solstice solstice at sunrise why am i having such a hard time saying that it lies northeast of the sarsen circle beside the end portion of stonehenge avenue it's 16 feet tall and leans inward toward the stone circle. Uh, a folktale relates the origin of the Friar's Heel reference. Uh, the devil bought the stones from a woman in Ireland, wrapped them up, and brought them to Salisbury Plain. One of the stones fell into the Avon. The rest were carried to the plain. The devil then cried out, No one will ever find out how these stones came here. A friar replied, That's what you think. Whereupon the devil threw one of the stones at him and struck him on the heel. The stone struck in the ground and is still there. So there we go. That's the friar's heel or the heel stone or the sunstone. And so Stonehenge is mentioned in the history of the Kings of Britain by Geoffrey of Monmouth. Uh, it includes a fanciful story of how Stonehenge was brought from Ireland with the help of the wizard Merlin. So there is a bit of a connection between Arthurian legend and Stonehenge as well. Nice. As well as, other legends tell how the invading Saxon king Hengist invited British Celtic warriors to a feast, but treacherously ordered his men to massacre the guests, killing 420 of them. Uh, Hengist erected Stonehenge on the site to show his remorse for the deed. 
that hmm. we're pretty we're pretty sure that's not true. During the 20th century, neo-paganism and New Age beliefs, particularly the neo-Druids, became interested in Stonehenge and wanting to return to using Stonehenge for religious or pseudo-religious purposes. Between 1972 and 1984, Stonehenge was the site of the Stonehenge Free Festival, which was a gathering of various New Age travelers for prayer circles and meditation and other other things like that. However, in 1985, there was an event called the Battle of the Beanfield, which took place between, yeah, <laughs> between <laughs> between the New Age travelers and the police when the, the site was closed because of a high court injunction. Perhaps to protect the integrity of the site could be just to get those, you know, hippies off my land or whatever. After 1985, for a while, it was closed pretty much entirely to the public. However, a European Court of Human Rights ruling in 1998, I think, allowed the restrictions to be lifted. One of the leaders of the Neo-Druid group is named Arthur Uther Pendragon, and he is a staunch campaigner for Neo-Druids and pagans in the UK, apparently. Okay, uh, and there have been there have been multiple solstice events and other events at Stonehenge since then. It shows up all the time in popular culture, of course. One of the earliest and kind of most noticeable in literature was in Tess of the Dubervilles. There's a a powerful scene at Stonehenge as a backdrop for the tragic events that unfold in Tess's life. In film, it shows up in you know all the time as like a, a supernatural kind of thing. For me. My favorite is, of course, this is Spinal Tap. They suggest staging a lavish druid-themed glam rock show, and one of the characters orders a Stonehenge megalith. However, he mislabels the dimensions, and the prop is only 18 inches instead of 18 feet. And I believe, (laughs) if I recall, their solution to that is to hire little people to make it look bigger, to be on stage next to it, which that joke hasn't aged. Mm-hmm. But I think most of the rest of Spinal Tap, I think, is still still okay. It's also shown up in like Doctor Who and Merlin and all that. The progressive rock band Uriah Heep released an album titled Salisbury in 1971, featuring a cover image that prominently includes Stonehenge. Led Zeppelin also drew inspiration from Stonehenge. Their song Stairway to Heaven doesn't directly reference the monument. Its mystical and ethereal qualities resonate with the aura of Stonehenge. And in Assassin's Creed Valhalla, set in the Viking Age, you can explore a representation of Stonehenge as well. So, that's a whole bunch about Stonehenge. There are people, there are stones called Trilithons, and Sarsons, and Bluestones. And it's in Salisbury Plain. Mm-hmm. That's what I got for you. All right. I know so much more about Stonehenge than I did so 20 I. minutes ago. Yeah. I was, I was like, it's rocks in a circle. Mm-hmm. But apparently there's more to it. So, yeah. are you ready for a quiz? Yes. Let's have a quiz. All right. Each question is kind of based on a a thing mentioned in the deep dive about Stonehenge that I I spun off from. So here we go. The first question is about bluestones. The International Gem Society recognizes both traditional and modern birthstones associated with each month. Some months match modern and traditional, but others don't. However, December can't seem to decide on anything and has five different blue gem options between the two lists. For two points each, name them. Oof. I'll give you 
I'll give you six guesses. All so, right. Yeah. All right. Five blue stones for December. Obvious one is sapphire, but I know that that's September. I think I'm going to say it anyway. I'm going to say sapphire. Sapphire is not one of them. Uh, all right. I could still get 10 points here. Turquoise? Turquoise is one. All right. Lapis lazuli. Lapis lazuli is one. Yeah. All right. I have named all the blue stones I know. <laughs> yep. That's where I got to. <laughs> Aquamarine. Aquamarine is not one. I think uh, Aquamarine is the modern for March. Okay. All right. Let's see. I've got two guesses. I need to come up with something. I will say that a couple of them are not... They are types of stone that are not exclusively blue. All right. Let's... So let's like I'm going to try... I'll, I'll try, like, a blue diamond. <laughs> blue diamond is not one. Okay. It is a thing that exists, though. We know that. Yes, um, the Hope Diamond, I believe. Is yes, 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 the Hope Diamond I was thinking of. All right, not exclusively blue. All right, I've got one guess left. This has gone poorly. I am, believe it or not, I am running through video games I have played that have various gemstones in you them. Know, that's how I learned a lot of gemstones yeah. early on. Uh huh. It's really good fantasy fodder. Is that one blue? All right, I'm going to say fluoropatite or something like that. No, I'm, it's not, <laughs> not close to anything. All right, so you got two. The other three are blue zircon. Okay. Blue topaz. Oh, blue to I, I thought topaz, and then I was like, no, I'm pretty sure that goes with some other month. Oh, uh, I should have I come back to blue topaz. type of topaz does, yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, tanzanite. Oh, yeah. So, so turquoise and lapis lazuli are the two traditional ones. And then the modern stones are blue zircon, blue topaz, and tanzanite. All right. Well, I got the traditional ones. But that cool. does remind me, you know, for people planning to be on Jeopardy, birthstones are birth a short stones. list that you can mm -hmm. learn yep. and just have it down. So there you go. All right. You're at 14 points. So you're doing fine. Question two. Spinal tap. Uh, Spinal Tap, the band, released LPs, at least in fiction. A real Spinal Tap is the old or perhaps just slang term for what other LP, a medical procedure. It is appropriately named for the action done and the region of the body it is done to. It's a lumbar puncture. It is a lumbar puncture. I don't have much to add to that other than... Yikes. Ouch. Yes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Hopefully you never have to have one. I yep. I certainly don't want one. Mm -hmm. Yes, they puncture your lumbar into your spine to get cerebrospinal fluid. Anyway, God, that was like the worst part of house. Mm. They did so many, so many lumbar punctures, and every time I was like, ah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> all right, you're at twenty-four points. Question three: Antiquarian. The Antiquary from 1816 is a novel that follows the main character Lovell and his sordid friendship with Old Buck, the title relic hunter and lover of old things. It was regarded by the author as his own favorite novel and was critically acclaimed in its time. It is the third of the Waverley novels by what Scottish author and poet? And I can give you some of his other works if that would help. 
Yeah, give me some of his other works. Other works of his include Rob Roy and The Bride of Lammermoor. All right. Is it Sir Walter Scott? It is Sir Walter Scott. Well Mm -hmm. done. Yes, nice. Apparently, The Antiquary is his favorite novel that he wrote. Huh. Never heard of it, but it Uh, it got really good. Like, there was one review that was like, not since Shakespeare have scenes been so deeply and authentically manifested on the page or whatever. Like, there's there's some very glowing reviews of it. All right. If you're looking for things to read, I guess you can go down the list for Walter Scott. All right. Yeah. Cool. You're at, what, 34 points? Yeah. Uh, Yes, 34. And this is question four. Druids. Though modern druidry, (laughs) I like that word, harkens back to the British Isles, North America has its own societies as well. One such society, the Reformed Druids of North America, (laughs) which I thought you'd get a a kick out of, was founded at Carleton College in Minnesota in 1963. The students who founded it, including Christians, Jews, and agnostics, did so to protest what policy which the college scrapped in 1964. As college students, they may have just wanted to not have to get up early on Sundays. Oh. Did they have, like, required chapel attendance or something like that? I'm not quite sure how to phrase that. Yeah, they did. They had, yeah, Yeah. the, the Carleton College had mandatory worship attendance. You got to choose. It wasn't just like their church, but students had to attend some kind of religious worship regularly. So they started a druids. So they they club. founded their own druid society, uh-huh. I guess, or religion, in order to protest it. And the reformed druids of North America is actually still around, and at this point is actually kind of more like legitimate neo druids. Like, cool. They they ended up gathering more people, and some of those people were like actually really into like the actual idea of it, and it just kind of became mm-hmm. one of those groups. All right. So there you go. Nice. You're at forty four points for question five. Henge. Another well known henge is in Cumbria, in the village of Ement Bridge. Ement Bridge. Ement Bridge. Whatever. Its circular shape and relatively flat surface led it to be named for what mythical object? The dimensions are way off, since it would be extremely difficult to have any kind of kingdom-running or quest-giving conversations across a span of 90 meters. Is it the round table? Like King Arthur's round table? It is named for King Arthur's round table. Which I don't know why they call it that, other than it's round and flat, but there's a henge out there. And apparently, a little ways away, there's a smaller one that they call the Little Round Table. Okay. Also, I figured it would be like, we mentioned King Arthur in the deep dive, it's probably on the mind. But yeah, there are a lot of henges, apparently, in the British Isles. I Hmm. was like, let me look at other famous henges, and there are just henges everywhere. Hmm. So there we go. All right, you're at 54 points, which is pretty good before we go into the final. uh, And your category is time to flex those video game chops. Oh, no. All right. I think I have to wager all of them, although my video game knowledge is hit or miss. But, you know, I will say this one isn't a deepest dive. Okay. All right. I'll wager all of them. Okay. All right. This one is based on Sunstone. In what video game series can you use a sunstone to do any of the following? Make 
Helioptile into Heliolisk, to make Petalil into Lilligant, to make Cottony into Whimsicott, to make Sunkern into Sunflora, or make Gloom into Bellossum. Hmm. And I can add one word into it that might help. Yeah, I'll take one more. Okay. Instead of make them into, you can make them evolve into. Oh. Oh. Is it Pokemon? It is Pokemon. <sighs> yes. I will say for me, the only one I recognized was Gloom into Bellossom, which mm-hmm. I didn't even know you could do that with a Sunstone because that's a later version than what I played. But yes, the Sunstone is used for that. You use different stones for other things. I was hoping as I went into it, I was like, I wonder what, what Eevee turns into if you give her a Sunstone. But apparently nothing. Apparently that's mm. not an option. Okay. You can give her the other stones. Make, you know, Jolteon and Flareon and Vaporeon. Mm-hmm. And those are the only three that count because anything else after that is made up and done. Okay. Good. Because I'm Good to know. And there are only 151 Pokemon. Mm-hmm. All right. You did it. 108 <laughs> points. <Yay>. Congratulations, Emily. <laughs> Thank you very much for this excellent quiz and this and this delightful deep dive. I, I really enjoyed this. And thank you, listeners, for spending time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you have a minute to do that. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who like Jeopardy, tell them about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. Mm-hmm. And we'll be back next week with more Jeopardy! And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye!